Welcome to the Bootstrap Founder. Today, I'm excited to share my conversation with marketing expert Corey Haynes. We dive deep into some of the biggest challenges that indie hackers face when it comes to product marketing. Corey explains why so many of us struggle with talking about their products effectively and then gives some great tips for how to overcome that. We also discuss Corey's new venture, Conversion Factory, and how their productized marketing services are tailored specifically for early stage companies. And finally, Corey shares lessons that he's learned about building a sustainable business model through the recurring subscription way of productizing a service. Corey knows how to do product marketing, that's for sure, and he'll share it with you. A quick shout out to our sponsor, Acquire.com. More on that later. Now here is Corey. Hey, Corey, thanks for being on the show. Now, you've been an indie hacker and a marketing expert for a good while now. So please tell me, why do indie hackers struggle so much with product marketing? We love building, we come up with ideas all the time, but talking about our product in an effective way, that just seems to be problematic. Why do you think that is? Mm -hmm. All right, well, I have a theory here that might be a little bit off the beaten path, but I think that a lot of Indie hackers, uh, and indie hackers in the traditional sense, I think, are people who classify themselves as like software developers who want to build their own products and apps and make a living independently, right? Um, so I wouldn't even call myself like a true indie hacker. I'm more of like a poser. <laughs> I'm an imposter. I just kind of yeah, snuck sure. in. Sure, we all are. We all are. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think you know what? I, I've had a lot of uh, people tell me why they struggle with marketing. A lot of indie hackers that just kind of like ignore it. It's a little bit scary, the things that they tell me. But honestly, the more that I talk to people, the more that I read in between the lines. And I think one of the, the real root issues is that a lot of developers aren't in the practice of really building a product for a specific purpose to solve a problem. So then when it comes time to talk about what problem they solve, they don't know because they didn't build the product to build a to solve a problem. They just built it because it was a cool idea or they wanted to experiment with some tech. They had an idea that popped in their head one day. And even if they even if they thought, oh, this can help make someone's life or job easier, they don't really have like a specific problem or a set of problems in mind where they could translate that into a value proposition where they could say, this product can help you solve this problem so that you can unlock X, Y, and Z value. And that is really at the crux of why I think people, indie hackers in, in particular, struggle with product marketing. Because product marketing especially is about narrative. It's about copywriting. It's about positioning. It's about how do you make your product uh, a bleeding neck problem where it's an urgent need. And it just makes it a no-brainer for people so that they get it and they love it and understand it and they start using it right away. Um, so anyways, that's not, that's, that's not a knock on indie hackers whatsoever. You ask me a question, so I want to answer it. But I think <laughs> the root problem is that a lot of indie hackers just really don't know what problem they're solving. Like the, there wasn't like a, a purpose or a mission really that their product was set out set out to solve. Do you think it's a skill that you can actually learn as a very technical person? Because that's what yeah. I always wondered. Right? Can, can I get to this point where I understand like how to approach yeah. it? Right? Yeah. Look, I mean, I'm learning to code right now. I'm taking my very first kind of baby steps going through Ruby on Rails. And um, I've done some like basic HTML, CSS stuff in the past, which is not even a real programming, right? But um, if you can learn, if, you, if you're a good developer and programmer, you're really smart, you have a great IQ, you can learn anything else in the world. <laughs> I'm, I'm convinced because this stuff is hard. 
Um, and it's not intuitive either, right? You have to train yourself in order to think like a developer and abstract problems and learn what tools you have in front of you in order to architect a solution the right way so that the program works smoothly and isn't you know, prone to bugs or errors or dependencies or it would be broken somehow. And the same way, you just have to train yourself to think like a little bit more like a marketer. You have to train yourself to think um, and get inside the, the head and walk in the shoes of your customers or who you think might be your customers. And it's just another habit you have to build and a muscle that you have to train. Right. Yeah. It's so funny that you're, you're telling me you're learning how to code and you, you still don't want to call yourself an indie hacker. That's just really <laughs> wonderful. Maybe once uh, I ship my first app, then I'll officially <laughs> um, call myself uh, an indie hacker. Ah, uh, that's funny. Yeah. I have, thanks for sharing that perspective. I think that that mindset, the marketing mindset, that is a hard thing for me personally as, as a more technical person to, to get into. And I still struggle with it, even though it is now a much more significant part of my journey, being in the more media corner than just the SaaS corner, right? Now I'm moving between these worlds. And it took me a long while. And, and honestly, I have to say one thing. I think you were one of the first people that introduced the concept of a swipe file to me. I just didn't know that that stuff existed. So yeah. uh, I would assume that a lot of people who listen to this right now may not really know what either what it is at all or what the ultimate purpose of a swipe file is. So if you could enlighten me yet again and the people who are listening for the first time, for the very first time. So uh, what is a swipe file? Why is it good? What, why don't I need it for? Sure. Yeah. I mean, a swipe file is really just a, a library or a collection of resources that you can use for inspiration in your, in your own work. So um, I think a lot of developers actually, uh, there's another indie hacker named uh, Rami who built a tool called PageFlows. And it's just a collection of screens and kind of UI patterns that you can use to copy into your own app or like, oh, I don't really know what like a paywall screen should look like or like an upgrade, you know, notification should look like. So let me go to PageFlows and see what other people have done, other apps have done. So let's see how Spotify does their paywall or let's see how CallMap does their um you know, their uh, expired trial screen or whatever it is. And then you can just translate those same exact ideas to on the marketing side where we think about what should a landing page look like? What should a competitor comparison page look like? What should a welcome email look like? What should a pricing um, module look like on a, on a, on a page? And it's why it's just inspiration for you to use to, um, you know, not start from scratch every single time when you, when you have a blank a blank canvas in front of you, just like an artist, right? Or a writer, everyone, everyone dreads the blank screen where they're just like, uh Oh, what do I do here? Um, it's easier to work with a template with some inspiration. It's easier to work derivatively off of someone else's work because then it inspires you on what will be your style or take on this certain thing. But it just gives you a little bit more structure to the way you build things. Yeah, you just mentioned the derivative nature of certain things. And that's one of mm -hmm. the things in marketing in particular that has always kind of kept me from trying things out because I felt uh, this has been done before. <laughs> and I know this is such a self-defeating idea, right? To, to think that just because yeah. somebody else did it before, you couldn't do it. But um, that that kind of it makes me think like maybe I'm just not cut cut out to think like a marketer because I have all these these limitations. But it, is is that the case? Like, wh where do these limitations come from? Like, wh why why do I struggle so much with this? Mm. Well, I think one of the other big issues for people is that. Uh, again, programming, if we were just talking about traditional indie hackers, it's um, everything is very logical and there's a, um, it's a closed box. It's a, it's a closed loop, right? Where it's just, 
whatever I put into this script and program, something's going to come out of it and it's going to come out exactly like I want it to every single time. Whereas marketing, there's not such a one-to-one relationship where if I put in an input, like write a blog post, I get an output of get X number of customers every single time. Um, One blog post might result in 10 customers. Another blog post might result in zero customers. And sometimes you don't know exactly why. And it's like that for every single marketing activity that you do for every piece of copy that you write, every landing page, every social media post, every ad that you promote, right? It's just, it's different every single time. And there isn't that linear relationship where it's just input is output, um, which is scary. And that it's, it feels like you're, you're taking a bet every single time. And to be honest, I mean, you just have to get used to that feeling because you don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen. Even after six years of being a, a first marketing hire for multiple startups, and I think that I have the playbook nailed down and you know things are pretty much guaranteed, they're not. They're not guaranteed. Um, so the, the answer is you just have to keep trying. You just have to keep shipping. You have to keep doing things. You have to keep marketing even when it doesn't work, which again is really, really crappy because it'd be the equivalent of like, working on an app that isn't functional for a year. You're like, you just have to keep working on marketing, even though it's not functional for a year until it is functional one day. And then all the things that you've done in the past, um, help you get to that end result, right? It's like the, uh, I think, who's it? Um, it's Thomas Edison who said, you know, I didn't, uh, I didn't fail 10,000 times. I found 10,000 ways not to do or not to make a light bulb work, right? So marketing is a lot like that, where you're just constantly churning through ideas that don't really work, don't really pan out. It's the gray areas that are the hardest because sometimes it'll work a little bit. You're like, oh, my blog post got 100 views. That's cool. Did it turn into customers? No, like it wasn't no one, but it also wasn't like an amazing thing. So do I do it again? Do I not? Those are the hard parts, really, of marketing. It's not really the, do I do it or not? You always have to keep trying. What else is there to do? You have to keep trying. You have to keep doing things. It's just figuring out what to double down on. That's the, the hardest part. Yeah, I, I think the, the lack of a deterministic outcome, that's my problem. I'm just yeah. figuring this out yep. as you explain this. It's just, yeah. yeah, for code, you write a line, and if it works, it will always work. You know, mm-hmm. always in quotation marks, but it will have a high chance of working because it's supposed to. But with yeah. a, a campaign, with an email, with a send, with a tweet, for that matter, right? It depends so much more on what other people do than what your compiler is structured to be. If you, if you compile some code into a binary, that makes perfect sense. I guess that's the switch. The switch is my input doesn't guarantee an output, but the continuation of my input is required for any output to ever show up. So if, if, if that helps anybody listening to this or watching this to just translate that little problem in their mind into something else, well, I hope it does. But personally, um, I would rather hire somebody to do this knowing that their inputs still have a higher chance of getting to an output faster than I do, right? Mm-hmm. That's, as you said, yeah. you're the first marketing hire for a couple of startups. That kind of raises the question for me. When does a startup first hire a marketer? When should they? When, what's mm-hmm. a good point? Because indie hackers, you know, everybody wants to just keep the thing to themselves, lifestyle business, never ever hire anybody. But it kind of feels to me like if you're not meant to do this, or if you don't feel like you're, you're up to it, you should hire somebody. Do you have a good mm-hmm. time frame for this, having done this multiple times for people already? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And if I can just jump in with one last thought on the, the last point. Oh, sure. On, um, sort of like the, 
deterministic nature of programming versus marketing. You know, one more analogy I'll give now that I'm I'm in the code and I'm learning all the different paradigms. I just learned, you know, a couple of weeks ago, like, well, when uh, when a program or a script throws an error, it's not that it didn't work. It's just that it didn't give you the output that you expected or that you wanted. And there's all sorts of different types of errors. And an error is a result. It's just not the result that you wanted. That's nice. I was like, oh, interesting. And again, marketing is exactly like that, where you're like, oh, my, my blog post threw an error. That doesn't mean that it didn't work. It just means I didn't give you the output that you thought that it would have. Yeah. And you have to keep debugging. You have to keep trying. You have to keep fiddling with the program, with the script. Oh, that's awesome. Um, see, I love these little like, <laughs> yeah. now that I'm in it, I'm like, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm getting it. I'm understanding it. So just tie that back into how do you know when to hire a marketer? Um, and when does that happen normally for a company? Uh, there's a couple, I would say there's two different approaches you can take. Um, one, which I think is the, the better approach if you can, especially if you're bootstrapping, is that you just have to embrace the role of the first marketing hire yourself. Because you're probably going to find it a lot easier to delegate the the dev and design side of things, since that's your area of expertise. And it is a little bit more deterministic in the sense where you can say, I want this thing, I want this feature built, I want this bug squashed, I will pay you to do that. Whereas with marketing, it's harder to hire that out because you might say, I'm going to hire you to get me 100 customers, but it's not guaranteed that they're going to get you 100 customers. So now you might have paid for something that isn't guaranteed, right? And so it's harder to know if you're doing it right or if it's your fault or if it's their fault, um, what to try. Um, there's a lot of different ways to get the result that you want. Um, so the best thing is just to embrace it yourself, learn to be a marketer, try things, just get back to that kind of student mindset and first principles and just kind of dig in and learn from others. And this is again, where I think the idea of like a swipe file really comes in handy because you don't have to reinvent the wheel there are lots of the people who have been there and forced the path before you. Um, this is why I, I, this is always why I'd like to talk, talking to any hackers because they'll talk to me about their product and I'll be like, Oh, have you tried this? Like, no, I've never even thought of that. I'm like, Oh, well, all of your competitors are doing that. Like I can easily <laughs> see that that's yeah. how they've grown all this way. And for them, it's like this huge unlock, like, Oh my gosh, I never thought of that before. But again, it's just being able to train your mind to uh, uncover those opportunities. And then once that's working well enough, then you can also delegate the marketing role to someone else. And you can do that as soon as you want to put the money towards it, really. Now, there's a second approach, which is you hire someone out of the gate or you partner with someone. Um, I've always considered myself to be like a great non-technical co-founder type of person because I am happy leaving all the design and development to someone else to make that their job. And then I will do the job of selling software. It's, there's two really big jobs in SaaS, build the software, sell the software. So I will sell the software. So if you just want to focus on development, um, like this is the relationship that I had with, uh, with Derek at SavvyCal. You know, I came on board freelancing with him as one of his first customers, like just right after kind of like an early access launch. And, you know, Derek's actually a very capable marketer more than he likes to give himself credit for. And he's a, a pretty good copywriter and he he knows the things to look for, but he didn't want to do it. He wanted to focus on the design and development and company building and delegate that to me. So then he hired me on as a freelancer to do all the marketing for them. Uh, some other people will bring on um, an agency. Some other people will bring on a technical co-founder. 
And in that sense, really your job as the founder is to hire the right person and then nothing else matters. That is literally the only thing that matters. The directions that you give won't matter if it's not the right person. Um, the things you tell them to do won't matter if it's not the right person. If it's the right person, they will know what to do and or they will figure out the right things to do in order to make it work because it just takes time and you need to have someone with the patience um, and the autonomy to go and take that and run with it. So again, two different approaches. Uh, you can do it as soon as you want to, or you can do it as late as you want to. Um, I've seen companies hire, you know, like working with Savical when he was just at a couple hundred dollars in MRR. I've seen companies wait until they're at, um, you know, mid seven figures ARR to hire their first marketer. I think earlier, the better, because it's a compounding growth lever where the earlier you start, the more that you invest into it, the more results you're going to get later on that just keep adding on top of each other. But you don't have to do it at any certain point. Um, and you shouldn't feel obligated to delegate it away right away if you don't want to either. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it always feels hard for me to determine who a good hire is, like what a good hire looks like in that regard, coming from yeah. a kind of opposing view. But that's kind of a trust-based recommendation. Or you just go to places that have already done it well for others, which is kind of mm -hmm. uh, where you come from. And I... I'm kind of want to want to segue into what you're currently doing because I the, the reason sure. we're talking is because I saw you doing something really cool in public, which has very much <laughs> to do with what we were talking about, which was launching a conversion factory, which is a the product <laughs> marketing and design agency. And I I love the idea of this. Um, I, I just want you to kind of explain what it is and what it's supposed to be and how it differs from the traditional agency model and how it's kind of more of an indie hacker SaaS like approach. I like all of this together. So yeah. just, just explain the whole thing, please. Yeah, sure. So a little bit of backstory leading up to it is that I've been doing a lot of freelancing and consulting with SaaS companies on their marketing and growth uh, since my last full-time gig. So it's been about three, three years-ish. It's been going great, but I can only do so much. And honestly, it's a little bit of a grind. Freelancing is difficult because it's kind of a juggling act. And when you have multiple clients, it's like having multiple jobs. Um, so anyways, uh, we, we sort of figured this something out with two of my good friends who, with timing and just um, like the opportunity, we just decided, you know what, let's do an agency together. Uh, we all were in, in a spot where we're like, I think it'd be better to work together. We want to work with other people. We think they're very complementary skill sets. And so what can we do? So my thesis was um, having worked with a lot of early stage SaaS companies and being the first marketing hire, one of the first things that I look to do uh, working with like a kind of shoestring budget is um, product marketing because without it, 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 nothing else really matters. The traffic that you run to your website is just not going to land. It's not going to convert. And so you have to lay that foundation of product marketing, which is brand, copywriting, positioning, narrative it's how do you talk about your features how do you make your products look and feel like a must-have bleeding next solution rather than a oh, maybe one day or that's kind of nice to have it's it's the whole vitamin versus a painkiller type of discussion so conversion factory is how do we help people turn their product from a nice to have from a vitamin into a bleeding next solution into a painkiller um Now, the way that we do that is through this kind of agency as a subscription slash productized service model. I think everyone is familiar with productized services now, especially in the indie hacker world, thanks to uh, Brett from DesignJoy. So you can think of us as DesignJoy 
but for product marketing. Um, so we actually, we do a lot of design. We do, um, we do brand, we do website development, but we also do all the other things in marketing that aren't top of funnel related, like copywriting, sales enablement, onboarding, email marketing, um, retention and activation, those areas of responsibility. And that was a gap that I saw in the market where I was just like, there's content marketing agencies, there's advertising agencies, there's no product marketing agencies. And yet that's where I always start with companies. And it's always the hardest to find someone to fill that gap because you either have to make a full-time hire or you have to do it yourself. And neither of those are really good options for early stage companies. So anyways, that's kind of like the backstory to Conversion Factory. Very cool. Yeah, I, I guess that there are so many design agencies because design is tangible. <laughs> if if yeah. you want a logo yeah. or something, well, here, you had it. Immediate mm-hmm. results, right? It doesn't do anything for you, really, but you have it. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting. I love this. And I love your, your, uh, the subscription model approach is always interesting to me. I mean, there's a kind of movement in the indie hacker world right now, not necessarily away from subscription, but kind of d- being more skeptical of subscription altogether. And it's nice mm-hmm. to see you actually taking subscription to a different model, a more traditional model, <laughs> like the agency and yeah. implementing it there. Because, you know, SaaS is just everybody is running a SaaS. Everybody wants MRR and that kind of stuff, even for things that probably shouldn't have MRR because they have no monthly expenses. Right. So I right. see a lot of indie hackers going to, you know, either full, full purchases, one-time purchases, that kind of stuff, or yearly plans that credit based things. There, there, there's a lot of experimentation now where a couple of years ago, everybody was doing subscription. It's nice to see it flipped around and doing in a, uh, done in another agency. It reminds me of a, a book by John Warlow, who wrote Built to Sell. He also wrote The Automatic Customer. And I think in that book, he, he just talks about nine different ways of how you can have recurring revenue in any business. And what he, what he, um, announces in there as one of the models is what he calls the insurance model. And I kind of have the feeling that what you are doing is very similar to what a freelancer on retainer is, but not the same. Is that right? Yeah. Like, do, do you consider it similar? Yeah, it is close. So one of the main distinctions when people ask us like, Oh, well, how are you different from other marketing agencies? And like, how does the model actually work? It's, um, it's like a retainer, but we're only going to work on a certain scope of projects and we're only going to work on one request at a time. So okay. it's the whole, you know, unlimited requests. You can work on one request at a time, um, unlimited revisions, et cetera, et cetera, yada, yada. But the point is that we're only ever working on one task at a time. And we aim to turn that task back around to you, get, a, get you a deliverable within 24 to 72 hours, sometimes it's literally in 10 minutes. In fact, our very first request that came in was like conference signage. And uh, they put in the request and Zach, our like main designer, literally gave it to him like 20 minutes later and he was like blown away. Like, oh my God, what? <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. um, so there's, there's cool opportunities like that. And then sometimes the request, you know, there are some where it's like, okay, we need internal feedback, going back and forth, needs to get reviewed. Oh, this person's out of town. And it's a week later, for example. Um, but a retainer normally is sort of like a, it's sort of a way to stop doing billable hours where everything is tracked, but you're still juggling multiple projects at once. And an agency is still tracking those hours because they want to know if the retainer is profitable or not. And there, there is like an upper threshold and limit to the amount of work that someone will do. So we essentially take away all the obscurity of what's happening on our side of how many tasks we can handle, what we're working on at any given time. And we say, 
Okay, it's one request, one task at a time. You choose what goes in and out of that queue. We will turn it around as fast as possible. And then we will knock out as many of those per month as we can. But we're not going to guarantee deliverables. Uh, we're not going to work on these like ginormous projects where the deliverable isn't delivered for three months or six months down the line. Um, especially for websites, this is one of the things that I see all the time. In fact, the first startup that I worked for, I remember because it was so baffling to me being new to the in industry. We spent a hundred and I think it was one hundred and thirty-four thousand dollars on a new website, which included copywriting, graphics, web development, et cetera, et cetera. And it took us uh, 14 months. So 134 grand over 14 months just for, for a new website. It should not take that long. It should not be that expensive. And you should not have to wait 14 months to get value out of the thing that you're paying for. So that also helps us with the one request at a time, deliver things back to people so fast that they're getting value immediately instead of three months down the line, six months down the line, 14 months down the line, because we're incentivized to ship it back to you in a way where you start getting value so that you keep us on board and we can keep working together. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Wow, 14 months for a website? Uh, that is horrible. But yeah, I can see a lot of stakeholders and everybody has opinions and things need to be done, yep. right? Yeah, if you, yep. if you don't outsource it to somebody who makes these choices for you. Interesting. What One thing that I found very interesting in looking into your offering there was that you have two modes, really. You have the, the sync mm -hmm. and the async mode. That's yeah. interesting. How, how does that work? And, and like what, <laughs> the price difference between them, can you talk something about that too? Say something about that price sure. difference? Yeah, and the plans are also derived from our theory about what people want out of us. So going back to your, uh, to your Warlow example about like, what do people pay for and the automatic customer? Um, you know, there's sort of like all these pricing theories and strategies about how do you choose what to charge someone, right? And on what terms and how often, et cetera, et cetera. And the baseline, what everyone kind of defaults to is like more cost-based pricing where it's like, well, I bought it for this much. I'm going to resell it to you at hundred percent markup. And that way I have a 50%, you know, profit margin and the customer understands that that's simple, but what happens when you get to something that's not as easily deliverable, like a service, for example, and especially on something like a retainer where everything that you're delivering back to them might have a different value attached to it. And this is also where I feel like the, the retainer and the, the project-based pricing that agencies fall into falls short because it's a lose-lose in the sense where, Agencies are incentivized to drag on work because um, they're billing by the hour, right? And uh, and companies, on, on the other hand, are incentivized to try to like squeeze everything into a short amount of time span as possible because they want to get value as quickly as possible and they don't want to pay that much. And then we get to things like subscription. This is why software as a, as a service is so powerful and awesome because it's a flat price and rolls out to everyone. But really, like one step above that in the kind of hierarchy of needs and just um, getting to like a premium price point is more paying for access. And I think this is kind of what you're pointing at with this whole like insurance model is you're not just paying for the work that we're delivering. You're paying for us delivering that work to you in our way with our opinions and with our secret sauce mixed into it in a sense, right? Um, 
that really gets down to like brand things. You don't want a painting from anyone. You want a painting from Andy Warhol or, uh, you know, Michelangelo or whoever other famous painters there are, right? Um, You don't want just any bag. You want a Gucci bag. Well, you don't just want any service. You want a service from Corey Haynes, from Zach Stevens, from Nick Loudon. And so that paying for access is our way of saying, well, you can work with us under these terms. These are the types of things you're going to get from us. And we're going to charge you on a flat rate on a subscription because honestly, that is part of what you're paying for is you're paying just for us because otherwise we're just a commodity, another service, another thing that will just kind of crank things out. We might as well be competing with, uh, um, you know, design pickle or um, some of those like copywriting subscription services that are completely undifferentiated. Right. Okay. Now to answer your question about the plans, how we decided on the plans was we decided a, a base rate of, look, if we want people to throw things over the fence to us, we're completely asynchronously, where, again, our time is not attached to the deliverable, which is very important to us, then this is the, the base price. But if people do want FaceTime with us, and if they do want our strategic input, where we say we help them plan out their requests, and we even give them a roadmap, and we tell them what they think they should give us to work on, then that is going to require some FaceTime. So what do we charge for our time in, in the form of bi-weekly calls and, and our input, what's in our heads, what is our secret sauce? Well, we just sort of decided on like a 50% premium, to be honest. There isn't like a lot of um, magical math involved in it. We just knew that it was more expensive than the async plan. And so 50% is a pretty standard markup for uh, a premium tier. Yeah. That that makes sense. Also, yes, I'm surprised it's just fifty percent because, just my my own personal perspective. <laughs> For the now. moment somebody, yeah, right. <laughs> the moment somebody wants my time, it immediately like access to my calendar. It immediately gets more, I, I don't know, expensive in my mind because it's something that keeps me from doing whatever comes to mind. And as a writer, I need to be I need to be present in front of my keyboard when the idea strikes, not the other way around, right? So. That, that makes sense. But yeah, that, that explains why synchronous is uh, much more expensive. That makes perfect sense. And you, you do price it. Um, to, let, let's just say it's, it's not early stage in the hacker pricing, right? It's, it's a uh, $6,000, no. $9,000 a month. That is a, a substantial amount of money. And I do wonder because I, you, you mentioned Brad Williams earlier and I remember him talking about when everybody on hacker news was kind of bashing the, the idea of, of the kind of one person studio and stuff. And he was saying that there's this kind of correlation between the size of a company and the quantity of their needs. That's the phrase that I heard him say. And the smaller they are, the more needs they have. And the opposite yeah. is true as well. And having these big clients per month, actually they, they use it much, much less, like once or twice a month, equating to like under an hour's worth of work. Have you mm-hmm. seen similar things in your own experience? Well, to be honest, we're too like early on to really be able to draw some some strong conclusions. But I will say just based on a lot of the sales calls that we've had and the customers that we have closed, that I can definitely see that being true. And I think it's mainly due to the fact that they have to make the budget go farther. A big company with a big budget doesn't need to get as much value out of the thing that they're spending because they just have more to work with. Whereas if you're an indie hacker and literally all of your budget, maybe all of your revenue is going towards a service like us, then yeah, you want to get a lot of value, as much value as you can. So of course, you're going to be constantly keeping the, the queue filled and up to date. You're going to be making requests all the time. You're going to be picky and you're going to be maximizing the, the service opportunity, right? But um, 
yeah, there's something to that also, you know, just pointing on like the pricing itself. The reason why we chose six grand as like our starting point is because it's still about half the price of hiring a full-time product marketing manager. And what we do isn't just the cost of a product marketing manager. It's also the cost of a part-time graphic designer, part-time product designer, part-time copywriter. So six to nine grand is still about a third of the cost of hiring us as a team, um, even if we were like junior level, to fill those same needs. Now, that's where it comes in because an early stage company probably doesn't need a full-time marketer, designer, and copywriter. They just need a part-time. So that's where we come in because we can do those things part-time. So in that sense, we are for indie hackers in the sense that um, we're going to be a lot more affordable than any other option if you wanted to delegate it out to someone else. Yeah. Yeah. You, you're definitely for indie hackers, just not the ones that have like $200. Uh, dollars no. In <laughs> no. And, and that, that's, it's reasonable, I guess, to go up market with this because like uh, you said earlier, it, it, it becomes more of an insurance for the bigger ones because they, they spend it. They know you're there. They know you're mm -hmm. going to be having a 24 to 72 hour delivery window and you're going to hit it because you can, because you, you yeah. smartly diversified your, your clientele. That's one of the things I really like about this model because it's kind of a, a small bets approach. Right, it's you have many small bets. You have many customers, many clients. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Do you call them customers? Do you call them clients? What is it? Is it I call agency them speak? Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, yeah. so you are an agent. <laughs> it's just you know, it's 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 with a with a subscription model, it becomes weird because a client is usually project bound, but the subscription makes them more into turns into a customer. It's just an interesting way of how we even think about what to call them. But that's that's an mm -hmm. aside, I guess. What what I what I wonder is, um, or not what I wonder, what I see here is that you have through this subscription model, many, many different clients or customers and not just the one big project that your, your whole agency's life depends on. It's kind of a nice way of diversifying just your risk, just like spreading out the risk um, in, in the community. Okay. And, right? And uh, was that an intentional choice? Like, was it, was it a, a necessity for you to start this? Because you could have just started a regular agency, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. The reason why we decided to go this route with us, um, again, me deciding like, um, I've been asked a bunch before again, okay, oh, we want you to do some consulting with us. Can you do this? Can you do that? Look, I can, I'm not trying to like brag or anything, but like I can do anything across the board from advertising to content production to product marketing, et cetera, et cetera. What do I feel like my superpower is though? And what do I feel like I can deliver back to people on a repeatable basis that I feel confident about? Well, yeah, it's going to be more on the product marketing side. That's the side that I love the most and where there are the most clear deliverables as well. Um, now, one of the problems being a marketer, this is always one of the bottlenecks at any company that I've worked for and worked with in, in consulting, is that there's usually always another side of what I'm doing where it's, hey, here's the thing that I'm making and building. Now I need someone else to help me implement this thing. So if I'm a copywriter, I have the copy for the page. Now I need someone to go design it and build it into a website. And that would always take forever. And I hated it because it was always <laughs> like, I feel bad. Like I'm not doing a good job when this is completely out of my hands. And so my buddy Zach told me the same thing and Nick where we were like, yeah, like we were working with bad copywriters who take forever or customer clients who don't even have a copywriter and they want us to do the copy and we can't. So we have to then refer it out to someone else. And then that slows down the whole process. So our theory was, 
everything that we can do together, um, or maybe I should say like anything that we do is not dependent on anyone else. We can deliver all the things that any one of us is working with a client on. So if I'm copywriting for a page, then Zach can design it and Nick can build it in Webflow. Uh, if someone else has any other problem, we're not dependent on anyone else. And that was a very intentional thing because that way our kind of destiny was in our own hands and we didn't have to, de you know, depend on someone else. And frankly, this is why I stopped doing a lot of the like advisory coaching stuff that I experimented with for about a year was because it was fun and it was nice and it felt like really easy money just telling people what to do and just kind of hopping on a call and brainstorming with them. But then they always had a really hard time implementing it. And again, I, I hate that feeling of feeling out of control. Like I, I'm telling you all the right things, but you're just not doing them. So now you're going to stop paying me. I hate that. So yeah, we want multiple clients uh, to diversify, but then the clients that we work with, we want to do things for them that are completely in our control. And that to me is like the ultimate kind of freedom in a sense where we're not dependent on anyone else. We don't need anything from anyone else. We can do it all. That is great. And and it is uh, another layer of de-risking. I mean, having multiple clients, yeah. already great de-risking because you don't have the whale that you need to constantly feed and, and uh, keep keep in the business to stay in business. But also that you kind of, <laughs> you're off the grid with your team. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's nice. Mm -hmm. You don't need, you need the yeah. external services anymore. Yeah. That That is a big deal. And that is a big deal for indie hackers in particular because I've been talking to so many people, right, who are building on top of some platform, a Shopify app, App or a Twitter API integration or whatever, and both both Shopify recently had this thing where this uh, company that bootstrapped to millions of revenue was just cut off because it competed with a core function with checkout. And India hackers, I mean, the whole Twitter debacle of a couple months ago when the forty two thousand uh, dollars API access pricing was introduced, which is one of the most bizarre things I ever witnessed. You know that destroyed a lot of cool businesses and it caused a lot of businesses to either falter or have to sell like what Tony Dean did with like magic that kind of stuff yeah. right? you needed to find right. a home for your business and it's bizarre but that's what happens when you build on top of the necessity of somebody else's work which is a platform tends to be so that is uh very smart of you guys to have both in who you serve and in what you can do the capacity to do all of this by yourself without needing like external things yeah. that's really cool and and all the clients that we work with no one is going to be an exorbitantly large client because our pricing is so standard, mm -hmm. right? So yeah. no one's going to be paying us sense. way more. Um, you know, one of, uh, one of our mentors for this business is a guy who ran like one of the first integrated marketing agencies all the way through like the dot-com boom to just a couple of years ago and took a public and was like ginormously successful. And he was just telling us a story the other day about how I think it was in like right after the financial crisis they lost a client that was paying them. It was their biggest client. They were paying them $7 million a year. And it almost completely destroyed their business because they had to lay off about half of their team at the time. And then um, it just changed everything. It was like, who's working on what and how and when. And one of the things that scared me the most about doing an agency was having to hire based on the work that was coming in. And it can be so variable, right? Like one month you're... You're scoping out a project for X amount over X amount of months. What if, you know, one month there's three of those and then after that there's nothing? Well, it's really hard to have like full-time people 
unless you're just really confident and constantly being able to replace churned clients um, and always have a consistent amount. And so this gave me, this model gave me a lot more peace of mind knowing that there isn't a lot of client risk and that they're all going to be paying about the same and that um, we can kind of throttle it up and down. We're not looking to build a billion dollar business because we can handle a lot of the work ourselves. And even when we do need to bring on some help, we can bring on contractors and they'll have a very specific role and it won't be tied to one client in particular who we just need them to do this one thing for this one client. Um, again, that's one of the pitfalls of running like a full service marketing agency compared to what we're doing. And it's why a lot of the agencies you see out there are content marketing agencies or demand generation agencies is because, you know, what happens when your first two clients want uh, demand generation and then your third client wants content creation and your third client wants product marketing. When they have to hire all these different people to do things for different clients. And so you lose the profitability of being able to spread the team's resources across all the clients at once. Um, and then scaling them down. Yeah. It's just, that becomes a mess. So this felt like a very safe bet in that sense where um, we wouldn't have to worry about, the variability of clients and what those clients want from us. Okay. Yeah. Do you, since you said safe bet, since that's the phrase I just heard, <laughs> do, you cons do you consider it um, a small bet still? Because I know you have a couple other things going on pers personally for yourself, right? As a as a yep. founder, you have to like, swipe well and the uh, swipe files thing, and but your book is still out there somewhere, right? And and you're active <laughs> on Twitter, you're active on social media, you're active on the in the podcast world and all that. Do you, do you consider uh, the conversion factory a small thing, or is it going to be a main thing? I think it's more of a main thing, um, mm -hmm. at least for right now. The, the reality, I mean, it's just, it's awesome seeing it um, play out, but like people like hiring people <laughs> and it's hard to, to get people to hire software to do a job. Mm -hmm. um, that's the thing that I love about software and SaaS is it's very utilitarian and it solves a problem and it does it well, but you have to be able to do it at scale. And also you have to make sure that your software solves a problem really well in the first place. And sometimes it's hard to even get to that place. And so number one, for me, I just, I never want to be in a place where I have to feel like I have to force something to work in order for me to be able to put food on my table and sleep at night. Um, and so people like hiring people, this is something I know that people will always want and need. And it's a lot easier to find product market fit than it is mm -hmm. software. I'll tell you that. Yeah. Um, Number two is I consider myself more like a kind of entrepreneur, tinkerer, um, creator in that sense where like, I love starting things. Um, I just like making stuff happen and like creating stuff that was in my imagination that I want to see in the world. And, um, and I think for people like me, based on a lot of other people I've talked to and, and mentors, just reading stories and a lot of those people have kind of like a cash cow that they use to do all the other things that they want right. to. But you need to have at least one thing that works <laughs> in order to allow you to put the time and our resources on other projects. And maybe some, some of those projects will pan out. Maybe they won't. But again, you don't, those things don't need to pan out in order for you to be uh, financially stable. And so this is like, this is kind of my life ethos of like, this is just the way that I want to go about things. 
And again, it's not that conversion factory is like a means to an end by, by any means, but it's that, um, I think the role that it plays in my life is that it, it is sort of like a job, but it's a job that allows me to be free to explore other things as well. And, and it's a job where you can talk about the job and do the job at the same time. That's one of yeah, the things yeah. I love about your work there because you're, you're doing product marketing around a product marketing business by building in public on Twitter. And I love that first off, because I learned something, but also because it just shows how much you care about this stuff. And that's kind of what I want to talk to you about. And, and by the way, the whole small bets thing, I, I think I, I had Daniel Vassallo on the show, the, the guy who is behind yeah. the, a lot of exp explanations around the small bets uh, methodology. And the idea is not to keep bets small. The idea is to have small right. bets and then see which ones grow. Right. So that would be mm -hmm. where conversion factor, factor, hopefully, but uh, from the looks of it already is heading. Because if I look on your website and I, I want to buy a subscription. I see a wait list and yeah. I, you know, that, that looks good. That looks uh, like an interesting development. Can you talk more about that? Sure. Yeah. We, again, because this is new and we've never done a product day service like this before, we wanted to make sure that the quality didn't go down as we scaled and we just didn't know how much work we could take on. So we kind of figured like, look, if we have the good problem of having too many clients, um, that'll be a good problem to have, but we don't want to have it be like a hair on fire type of situation where, um, we just are running around like crazy and it's not fun. Why don't we try to figure out like a cap and then throttle the demand up and kind of ratchet our capacity up as we figure out what the benchmark is and just what's the baseline, how much work can we really handle? So we decided like, oh, I think like five clients is probably around, like we'd be profitable at that point. We can totally see how having like five recurring requests uh, or five concurrent requests at any given time is like pretty manageable. Let's just start there. So we hit that limit and now we're trying to see and kind of establish like, okay, how much more room do we think that we have before we let those people off the wait list and just kind of like open it up to the rest of the world. That's so cool. Thanks for sharing this. And thanks for not just sharing it here, but sharing it on Twitter, hopefully in the future as well, what the experiments yeah. and, and the learnings are, because that feels like such a, such a helpful thing for the community to understand. Because you're kind of, I mean, you, you're not uh, the, the first person to ever come up with a productized service, but I, yeah. I feel you are one of the few people that actually understands our little in the hacker community and how we think and how we perceive things. So you can phrase it in a way that is accessible for other people. Like you did earlier with your now um, learning how to code, you, you're finding these little translatables, right? Where you can take one concept from one world and translate it into the other. You have a great skill at doing this. And I love the fact that in sharing this on, on, on Twitter as a building public method, you, you are helping people understand maybe that's something for them in their specific area of expertise and expertise expertise it is because the more i look at your website and i really like it it's a it's a really well designed oh, website with great copy it's just one thing that really stood out to me and and that is I, I guess a testament to your ability to do high quality product marketing is i was thinking all, all i care about right now is to see the the, the price of this because i wanted that's that's the first thought that came to my mind because i mm -hmm. kind of knew from you launching it what it was what it was about what it was going to be and i wanted to, uh, to see the price and the only button the only link that is on that page for me right now up there in the in the header is see plans like it's yeah. like you know what i want it's like you know what i need i just want to tell you that was my experience in looking at the website so that really worked well for me of course there's more if you go to the hamburger menu and stuff but you you just understand what's necessary to, to get somebody to get to the information that they want so good job 
on showing publicly how good you are at this. Just wanted to tell you that. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's very important for us to, to dog food our own expertise and process. And whatever we put out there is going to be anything that someone would use to make a buying decision off of, right? Do these guys really know what they're talking about? Do I want something like that for myself? Um, that is really how a lot of people decide on service partners, especially, is do I want something like something they've already created and done? So everything that we create and have done has to be something that we want someone else to look at and say, I want to be like that, including ourselves primarily, right? Um, and it is funny because I've seen a lot of marketing agencies and design agencies outsource it to someone else, to a freelancer or to another agency, which to me is just like totally baffling. Like that's like being a, you know, email marketing software and then using a competitor for your own automated emails. I'm like, well, that, that's what would never even fly with any software company. So why would, you know, agencies do that as well? But um, yeah, I, I think that we know what we're doing. <laughs> I hope it comes across that way. Oh, it certainly does. Yeah, it, it's kind of weird that people would hire this out, but that's just, maybe they don't trust in their own skills. That's what it communicates, right? Which is yeah, which is such a biz- right. bizarre thing. Well, one, one question though, how long did it take you to build that website? 14 months? Was that the website that cost you yeah. $145? One week. Okay, well, that's much faster. Yeah, yeah. that's that's kind of what you what you want to be able to do, right? You, you want to be mm-hmm. quick. You want to have it look well and and still um, do it fast. Yeah, man. <laughs> 14 yeah, months. I mean, it's I a little bit easier and it's and it's faster because you know we're the deciders, so we know what we want. We've already talked about things for a long time. We don't have to like get feedback from internal stakeholders or whoever people they have to get approval from so you know it took me about a day to write like the first draft of the copy and i just ran it by zach and nick we made a couple of tweaks we we're like cool uh zach when he mocks mocks something up in figma it was done in figma again like it start to finish took literally like a week um in fact the longest part and the reason why we delayed the launch even by about a week was just waiting for um like our, our mercury bank account and stripe account to be live because yeah. we had like incorporated the week before and then took a little bit longer so like the website was not the bottleneck for us (laughs) right (laughs) oh that's good to know yeah wow that's that's interesting i i wonder how much time do you still have for your other projects as because they like you you have in in swipe well you have a tool that is uh that is it's kind of a SaaS product project right there's a browser integration that needs to be taken care of and in swipe files you have a community of people like do do you set time aside for this even though this thing is you know big and and growing yeah that's a good question um i'll probably have better answers for that in a couple of months for right now it was sort of like well I've always worked in seasons a little bit where I'll kind of just sprint and then like go heads down on something and then kind of come back up and find a more normal way to incorporate into my, my work week. But uh, yeah, I've kind of just blocked out like July and August are going to be a hundred percent conversion factory because I don't want there to be anything steering my attention away from this as we get it up off the ground. And especially because as we bring on clients, I don't want there to be anything that would give them a reason to not trust in us or to want to cancel um, and also just nailing down the processes for the first time has been a really big thing or we're, we're like, this is the first time we're doing it. So we need to give ourselves room in time in order to stop for a second and say, okay, we're seeing a pattern here. What should we do about this? Okay. Let's, let's create an SOP for it. Let's create a little notion board for this over here. Let's templatize this. Let's add in some zaps, you know, just being able to, um, create the machine, right. Rather than just 
always flintstoning it and making it work um, haphazardly all the time. Um, but what's happening with SwipeWell is sort of just like on autopilot, Connor, my co-founder, is taking care of that right now. Um, and then we'll get back to it in September and kind of do, you know, start to work in some more hours into where we go next with it. Uh, with Swipe Files, I also rejiggered it where I've, I've kind of, I'm, I haven't gotten rid of the community, but I've really stripped it down and pared it down to just the bare essentials. So it's not really like the main draw of what people come to get and expect. Um, one, because honestly, I don't know how you felt about this. I'd be curious to hear actually, but I felt like the last couple of years since like COVID, there's been all these waves of trends for businesses and technology and just like what people are doing. And there was this pretty rapid cycle of like, okay, first it was creator economy. And then it was like, everyone has a newsletter business. And then it was like communities were all the rage for, for a second there podcasting had its moment as well. And um, so I kind of felt like people aren't really stoked about online communities as much as I've seen. And I've definitely seen a big drop off and like, why, why force it when I just, at the end of the day, I want to know what's valuable to people. And if that changes, then I should change with them as well. So instead I relaunched a new, or I didn't relaunch it. I created a new course and then I relaunched sort of like a pared down version of the community with more of an emphasis on the courses so that I don't have to work on it as synchronously. It is more of an async that's, work schedule for me. That's the big difference. And that's what I've seen too. Like the moment you, you can establish asynchronous things, everything is fine. And the moment, maybe more importantly, the moment your customers expect async or are fine with async, Good. That's good. That's good to go. But if you, if people think of that community to be the same thing as a chat room, as a, a yeah, constant, right. a constantly on kind of university where you go to things and they happen at a certain time and then you have a little break and then you do another thing. Like, if that's fine. If you want to organize that or if you can pay people to organize it for you or if you have volunteers, whatever. But that requires you to build the infrastructure of not, not a community, a village. You need a village. You need people with different jobs doing them at yeah. the same time. Like, or, and then global village too. You need people in different time zones dealing with all of this. That feels complicated. And, uh, similarly, uh, um, like you, I, I found that community is not maybe not the most important thing I can do because it is synchronous and that makes it hard to scale. And I want my things that I do to be at least available at scale, which is why I have books and courses and my newsletter and my podcast and all these things that I that's kind of one to n, right? I, one person doing it and n people consuming it. It's not a, not a one on one or or n n to m situation. So um, I have equally pared down my community around the find you following course and people just interact with me on Twitter anyway. So if they need me, if they need access to me, um, th they have it there and they don't really do much with each other because there's also a lot of weird stuff going on when people when it comes to engagement farming or whatnot. I don't want to invite mm -hmm. any of this. Mm -hmm. So I just want people to learn from each other and from me, which is why Twitter's still, or do we call it X now? I don't know. It's still a I great know. community. Right? <laughs> like, like, I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna be one of these old people yells at cloud thing, Pepperidge Farm yeah. remembers situation where I'm just gonna call it Twitter for the rest of my life. But you know, that's, that's, that's why I'm at too. And you're right. There are trends all the time. It just turns out for me, I, I think I've hooked onto most of them, particularly podcasting and newsletter. And I found that it is fun and enjoyable and doable because they are not things I do all by themselves. They are kind of channels for the thing I already do, which is right. right. 
right? So my, my podcast is my, my writing read into a camera or into a microphone. My mm-hmm. YouTube channel is that exact same thing, but with video. And my newsletter is that article that I write anyway as a newsletter. So if it's just like syner- synergetic, is that a word? Then mm-hmm. it works for me. But if it's one thing that I need to devote so much time to all in itself, I'm probably not going to do it. That's how I, right. how I deal with, with trends like this. Yeah, I, I've learned that too. Just trying to really embrace what do I want to do? What do I like doing? What fits in with my, the things that I like creating? I think, you know, if you're, if you call yourself a creator, you don't have to do all the things. What are the things and the mediums that you actually like creating on? And I think having synergies between a lot of your products and just what you're doing also makes a big difference. One of the other reasons why I felt really good about launching Conversion Factory, because I knew that I could uh, promote it and it could really be like a, um, informal sponsor of the swipe files newsletter yeah. as well yeah and great. like a lot of people know me from there that i'm not launching like a i don't know like a tiktok shorts agency where it's just like there's no overlap with my existing audience like all of my audience and my network is b2b SaaS. so this is right in line with that a lot of synergies and speaking of that like one of the other things we want to do with conversion factory is we want to add in some products and we want to build some website templates on webflow and maybe some other platforms as well in the future. But that's one of the other things that kind of has me excited where I'm like, again, I don't, we don't need this to work. It'd be nice. And we can like, that's another small bet. We can add to the portfolio and just see kind of what happens and where it goes. But uh, that's, that's another like thing in line with what we do well, what people know us for, what people want from us, where we think we can fill a gap in the market. That's really cool. Man, you, you seem to have a, an interesting couple of years ahead of you. That sounds like a lot of fun projects all under the umbrella of something that is nice and stable and well thought out. I really appreciate that. I hope so. Yeah, it should be a really interesting couple of years. Um, Hopefully very fruitful and hopefully a lot more new interesting things to talk about. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Well, since uh, I'm already following you on Twitter, I know where to go to to find out more (laughs) about you. But uh, if somebody for some reason hasn't heard of you and your work, over the last couple of years that you've been very active on Twitter on uh, or anywhere else, where do you want people to go to be able to follow you on this amazing journey that you're on right now? Yeah. I'm also a huge Twitter fan. I'm going to still keep calling it Twitter. That's I'll know that I'm like, like, I don't know. It, it'll be difficult to say X for the first time. I don't yeah. even know what to call it. Is it the X platform? Is it just X? If I'm not X, <laughs> it feels so weird. Like if I'm not X, Y, Z, you know, yeah. like I'm like yeah, filling the blank somewhere. Anyways, I'm on Twitter at Corey Haynes Co. Uh, my personal site, Corey.co, has a list of like all my projects and just links to everything on every social media platform and whatnot. Um, and then, of course, if you're interested in checking out Conversion Factory, it's conversionfactory.co.co. So any and all of those links will work and uh, happy to deal with people anytime. A lot of dot co. I like it. <laughs> yeah, not a lot of dot coms. I got the dot com for swipe files. Yes. And um, I've looked at the dot com for Corey and for Corey Haynes. But mm-hmm. both of them, well, Corey.com is, I don't know who owns it. It's probably some big conglomerate. But Corey Haynes.com is owned by a like pretty like famous developer, actually. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, I'm never getting that one. I'll find <laughs> the next best thing, which is maybe just like my first name dot co. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> 
Hey, good job for that. Like, I, I think I have uh, Arvid.fm or something too for these particular purposes. Nice. It's fun. always nice to, to have a short point. It, it, it's really, really cool um, to hear that development and a uh, good domain with .com or .co doesn't really matter. You, the project, projects and products are spectacular and the journey that you're on and the way you're sharing it is really nice. So thank you so much for sharing your insights here today into product marketing and building uh, a wonderful productized service subscription as an insurance business. Let's make it as complicated <laughs> as it gets. Um, thanks for, for all of that. It's always really nice to chat with you and I cannot wait to see where this is going and I'm going to be there watching it. Awesome. Thanks, Arvid. Yeah, thanks for having me. And I'll be doing more building in public in public on all the public places like uh, Twitter slash X and my personal site and everywhere else. <laughs> cannot wait. Thanks so much for being on. Thanks, man. And that's it for today. Now, most technical founders, they shy away from the productized service approach. They'd rather build a SaaS, a software as a service business. And that's something that's just more easily automated and it comes more easy to people that build software. And that often is a good idea. Still, they run into challenges that they might not have expected. And this is where I want to talk about our sponsor, Acquire.com. Imagine this. You're a technical founder who's built this really great SaaS product and you acquired customers and all of that is just generating consistent monthly recurring revenue. The problem is you're not growing for whatever reason, lack of focus, lack of skill, or just plain lack of interest, and you feel stuck. What should you do in that moment? The story that I and everybody else would love to hear is that you just buckled down, reignited the fire, got past yourself and the cliches, started working on the business rather than just in the business, and then you built this audience and move out of your comfort zone to do sales or marketing, something you hate doing, but you do it. And six months down the road, you've tripled your revenue. Reality is not as simple. Situations like this may be different for every founder who's facing this crossroad, but too many times, the story ends up being one of inaction and stagnation until that business becomes less valuable or, at worst, completely worthless. So if you find yourself here, or your story is likely headed down a similar road, I offer you a third option. Consider selling your business on Acquire.com. Capitalizing on the value of your time as an entrepreneur is a smart move. Acquire.com is free to list, and they've already helped hundreds of founders out there. So go to try.acquire.com slash Arvid and see for yourself if this is the right option for you and your business right now. Thanks for listening to The Boots of Founder today. You can find me on Twitter at avidkal, A-R-V-I-D-K-A-H-L. You'll find my books and my Twitter course there too. And if you want to support me and the show, please subscribe to my YouTube channel, get the podcast in your podcast player of choice, and leave a rating and a review by going to ratethispodcast.com slash founder. Any of this will help this show. So thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful day. Bye-bye.